John chapter 13 this morning. We'll begin reading in verse 14. John 13, beginning in verse 14. We'll pick up a couple of verses where we left off last week and then add some verses to it. John 13, verse 14, and we're going to read down to verse 20. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled, he that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it is come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Verily, verily I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send, receiveth me, and he that receiveth him that and and he that receiveth me, receiveth him that sent me. I'll leave off reading there in verse, verse 20. I want to go back to verse 14 and 15 and draw out two statements. Verse 14, you also ought. You also ought to. And verse 15, for I have given you an example. Now, we've dealt with this a couple of weeks ago, and I want to come back to this this morning and then because it forms a foundation for the next statement that he makes. The English word ought in verse 14 teaches us that we have a present tense active obligation, a present tense right now active, not passive, active obligation to do and be as our Lord in the context to love the brethren and to serve them. The English word example in verse 15 teaches us that in his demonstration of being a servant, of our Lord's demonstration of girding himself with a towel and washing the disciples' feet, in his demonstration of being a servant, our Lord set out a pattern of life for his believers, for his followers. The washing of the feet was the responsibility of the servants of the household. From this, we are to learn and act like our Lord did toward his disciples. His act of washing their feet was an act of love for them. The chapter opened up with having loved his own. He loved them unto the end. His act of washing their feet was a demonstration of his heart as a servant. He calls himself master and Lord, and yet he girds himself with a towel and washes their feet. We are to learn from him that Christian love seeks the good of others, especially the good of our brothers and our sisters. If we seek their good, we will seek to serve them. The idea of the world is, you need to serve me. But Christians is, no, we serve you. 
will take the place of a servant in the kingdom of God because that's the example that our Lord Jesus Christ has set for us here in this chapter. We're to learn from Him to seek the good of others by serving them. And that brings us to verse 16 and 17. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Neither is he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are you if you do them. This statement in verse 14, the servant is not greater than his Lord, is so important that our Lord repeats it again in John 15. Now, I'm not 100% sure about the, 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 uh, the time frame of John 15 yet, but it's either the same night or the very next day that he says the words in John 15. Either the same night as they are traveling from Bethany to Jerusalem or the very next day as they're in Jerusalem preparing for the Passover. And he says in John 15 verse 20, Remember the word that I said unto you. He just said it. Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. But this time he adds, If they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. The servant is not greater than the Lord. In salvation, we are united with Christ. The, the God and sinner separated by sin. Jesus Christ dying for that sin. Jesus Christ saving the sinner. And when he saves the sinner, they are joined together. Jesus Christ and the sinner joined together. He is in us and we are in him. That's what the scriptures teach. We are united together with Christ. Inseparably united. And so united that what he experiences, we will experience. If they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. And so united that what we experience, he experiences. Where he said that the high priest is touched by that which we experience on this earth. This unity with Christ binds us together so that we share in all that belongs to Christ, including, including the sufferings of Christ, not at the cross, that can never be, but the sufferings of Christ on the earth as the world hates Him, they will hate us. And so our Lord is saying here, the servant is not greater than his master. And we need to learn from that what he is trying to say here. Now, in the context of 13, it means one thing. In the context of 15, it means another. But it is the same truth. We have been bound together with Christ. He is bound together with us. And whatever he has suffered, we will suffer. Whatever his joys are, we will have. Whatever his blessings are, we will have. All these things go together. So... What we're learning here in John chapter 13 is that the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and those who follow Him, the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and those who have repented of their sins and believed on Him to the saving of their souls is a relationship of master-servant. There's a lot of preaching today that leaves this aspect of Christianity out. It is true that as a Christian, we enjoy a father-child relationship. 
If you are a child of God and you are a male, you have a father-son relationship. If you are a child of God and you are a female, you have a father-daughter relationship with our Father in heaven. We are taught to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven. He's there, and He is our Father. And that relationship is real. We cry from our hearts oftentimes, Abba, Father. That relationship is real. It is also true that we have a friend-to-friend relationship. This amazes me. I can sort of grasp the concept of father-child, but friend-to-friend, God friends with Pat Horner, Pat Horner friends with God, how can that be? Only on the basis of what Christ has done for me. John chapter 15, the very two chapters later, John 15, 15, our Lord says, Henceforth I call you not servants. Uh, This has been polluted, and I'm going to wait till I get there to open it up. But uh, I call you not servants. Here in verse 13, he's calling them servants. So is God contradicting himself? No, God doesn't contradict himself. He doesn't do that. Uh, For the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. It's an amazing statement. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. What I hear from the Father and what I teach you is because I am your friend. And I'm teaching you. It doesn't mean we're not servants, but we'll get to that in a minute, because he actually does call them servants after John 15. So what does he mean, henceforth I call you not servants? It's got to be in the context of what he's talking about. Thirdly, we enjoy an elder brother, younger sibling relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. That's another thing that just sort of boggles my mind. There's a verse in Hebrews chapter 2, in verse 11, Hebrews 2.11, that says, For which cause he is not ashamed to call them his brethren, or call them brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ, in glory, before the throne, before the holy angels, before God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ stands, as it were, in glory, and said, these are my brothers and sisters. Brother, I, I don't know what verses like that do to you, but it just sort of melts my heart sometimes to understand the relationship that I have with the Lord Jesus Christ because He has saved my soul. He is my father. He is my friend. He is my elder brother. All of these things are true, but at the same time, the Scripture also teaches that those who repent of their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to the saving of their, soul, of their souls enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ as master-servant. Master-servant. In another place, Lord and Savior. The same doctrine. Master-servant. And so let's look at this this morning. What does the English word Lord mean? If it says here, in verse 13, Master and Lord. Verse 14, Lord and Master. Verse 16, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Lord is mentioned three times here in these verses. It comes from a Greek word which is kurios. Kurios defined as the one who is supreme in authority. The one who has absolute control. That's what the word means. When the word Lord is used here, it's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ as being the one in supreme authority over the one who is the servant. 
Now, that word can also be used for mankind. But when it is used with men, it is speaking of an authority that has been bestowed upon them. But when it is spoken of Christ, it speaks of authority that is innate with Him. That which is on the basis of the fact that He is Almighty God. He is the Sovereign of all. I have a certain level of authority being pastor of a church, but that's bestowed upon me by the church. I do not take that authority on my own, but the church has given it to me. It is not an authority that is innate with me. It's not an authority I had when I was born. But the Lord Jesus Christ has an authority that is who He is. It is part of who He is. He is the Almighty God. He is the Sovereign of heaven and earth. None can stay His hand or say unto Him, What doest thou? He is Lord over all. This is what that word means. Now the word servant. The word servant comes from the Greek which means do, is doulos. Doulos means a bondman or a slave. And it can mean a slave that is involuntarily made a slave, someone forced to be, or a slave that is voluntary, one who submits himself to be. When we are born in this world, when we are born in this world, we are born into a world where we are involuntarily made a slave to sin and Satan. We did not choose that. When we were born in this world, by the very nature, by our very nature, we involuntarily became a slave to sin and to Satan. That's our nature. Every one of us. From the time Adam has fallen into sin until today, this is the, this is the case with all men. We may not recognize it. We may not understand it. But nonetheless, it is the case. We have, uh, the scripture says in John, uh, Romans uh, six seventeen. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin. The word servants there is the same word as it is here. You were the slave of sin. Sin ruled over you. You did not rule over it. Uh, the man who thinks he has control over sin has deceived himself. And he is not wise. Sin rules him. He does not rule it. The same is true of Satan. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 26, that they may recover themselves out of the snare, uh, out of the snare of the devil who had taken, who were taken captive by him at his will. Satan at his will comes and takes captives. And they are bound in the kingdom of darkness. At peace in the kingdom of darkness, our Lord says, and the only way they escape. Here is the kingdom of darkness, and that's where all, that's where I was, and that's where all sinners are, and the only way they escape is if the Lord Jesus Christ, who is greater than Satan, comes in, binds up the strong man, and takes out for himself those that he has paid for their sins. And they're set free then from that darkness and brought into a kingdom of light. They're set free from that involuntary slavery of sin and Satan. And through Christ they are now free. And now they're free from sin. And now they're free from Satan. And what do they do then? Well, from the heart, they voluntarily say, I will serve you. Voluntarily. 
when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, when we're converted into a child of God by the power of God, made a child of the Father through the power of Christ, we voluntarily take ourselves and place ourselves as it were at His feet. I'm your servant. You're my master. No one has coerced me to do that. No one has forced me to do that. No one stands over me with a whip and demands that I do that. No. It flows from the heart. And it may be in different measures depending upon where we are in our Christian life, but every Christian understands at least in a measure this truth. Christ has saved me from my sin. I owe Him my all. Christ has saved me from darkness and hell and the pit. I owe Him my all. I can never repay such a debt as that. And so I just simply give myself. Here, Lord, I give myself away. We're described as one who voluntarily gives themselves up to the will of another. What were the first words out of the mouth of Saul of Tarsus when God took him to the ground on his road to Damascus, blinds him, speaks, they hear a voice, but they cannot tell, but Saul knows. Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Lord, what will you have me to do? First words. First words out of his mouth. How did that happen? Because here's a man with papers in his hand to go to Damascus to destroy Christianity. And now he comes into a face-to-face relationship with the living God. And in a boom, in a heartbeat, as we say, Lord, what will you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And he's given instructions. This is what you should be doing. We see this. In, in Luke, go with me over there, Luke 640. I want you to, I'm going to look at several verses uh, and draw out from those verses different truths on this same subject. Luke 6, verse 40. Luke 6, verse 40, where the scripture says, the disciple is not above his, uh, his master. Here the word disciple is used instead of servant. The word disciple is, the, is a follower, one who follows the teachings and the way of life of another. We have sit, as it were, as a student before the master who teaches us, and then we follow that teaching. That's what this word means. Luke 6, 40, the disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. Uh, in the English, that word would condemn us all. Perfect, I'm not perfect. Perfect, uh, is there anyone here who could raise their hand? I'm perfect. I'm like my, no, none of us, right? So what is it being said here? Well, again, we come back to the Greek word behind the English word. And the Greek word behind the English word means to be made complete. That is, in the process of being made complete. To be repaired in the process of being repaired. To be restored in the process of being restored. To be mended in the process of being mended. To make one what he ought to be. He's not what he should be, but he is being made into what he ought to be. That's what the word perfect here is talking about. And it's used in different uh, texts in the scriptures. 
But what it is speaking of here in Luke, in Luke 6 is that God is always working in the life of a child of, of His, making them, forming them into the image of His Son, and in this case, the image of the Son of God as a servant. God is forming, making, molding us, mending this, repairing that, to bring us into the image of a servant. It's not natural. We are born with this idea that we are king. <laughs> I'm the master of my own life. I don't need a co-pilot. I'm my co-pilot. You see, I saw a bumper the other day in, in Abilene. I was in Abilene. And you, in the 70s, you used to say, God is my co-pilot. And I used to chuckle a little. This guy said, I'm the pilot. He didn't say, God is my co-pilot. He just simply blazingly said, I'm the one in charge of my life. No, you are not. Whether saved or lost here, you are not. Unfortunately, we think we are, though. I remember those days. I remember that. Let's look at Mark 1 and 19. Mark chapter 1 and 19. I want you to see that. Mark chapter 1, 19. Very early in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and there's a word used here. Mark 1, 19. And it's the same word as perfect in Luke 6. Mark 1, 19. And when he had gone a little further, thence he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, who also were in the ship mending. There it is. That's our word perfect in Luke 6.40. Same word from the Greek, but this time in English, mending. So, mending. They're in the process of mending the net. God, then, in a ref is, is in the process of mending things in our life. Fixing this and that so that we more closely reveal His Son as a servant. Again, Galatians chapter one, uh, chapter six, verse one. Here's our word again. This time used in the book of Galatians by the apostle Paul. Galatians chapter six, verse one. Galatians six, verse one. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one. Restore. There is that word perfect in Luke six forty, and the word mending. In Mark chapter 1. Restore such a one. And here it is our responsibility as Christians to be going about doing what our God is doing to us. Is God working in your life? Is He repairing it? Is He mending it? Is He restoring it? Is He fixing it up? Is He doing something in your life to change you more and more into the image of His Son? If He is doing that, then how are we going to be acting? Well, we're going to be going about and saying, Brother, let, let me... I'm just picking on you here. Brother, let me come alongside you and, and help you here. Sister, let me come alongside and help you there. We're going to be doing what our Lord is doing. We're going to reflect what He is doing in our life. It's going to come out. We're not going to say, oh man, look at what He did. Ah, I don't know if I want to have anything to do with that. What if the Lord Jesus Christ did that with you? I don't have anything to do with that guy. That Pat Horner, I mean, he is, as Diane's uncle once said, beyond salvation. I am preaching the gospel to him because he's beyond salvation. I'm glad the Lord Jesus Christ didn't see that. 
No sinner beyond salvation in the hands of Almighty God. What is God doing in your life? Is He fixing things up, repairing it, mending it, molding you? Yes. What are we supposed to be doing? Reflecting that same thing. That's what servants do. That's what disciples do. That's what Christians do. And so we look this time in Luke 22. Same thing. The same truth as is borne out in different texts. Luke 22, this time beginning in verse 26. Luke 22, 26. And the disciples are arguing over who is going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. And there's division among them. Because, and strife among them. Why? Because they're fighting over who's going to be greatest. And our Lord knows and understands what's going on in their hearts. And he brings them aside. And in verse 26, but you shall not be so. This is how the world acts. This is how the Gentiles act. This is, this is the way of the world. Your thinking is contrary to Christianity. You're thinking like the world is thinking. And he says in verse 26, it shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be the younger. Uh, he that is chief, as he that doth serve. There it is. For where there is greater, who is greater? He that sits at meat, that is, he sits at the table to get fed, or he that serveth, the one that brings the food to him. Who is greater? He's sitting at the table, and there's no plate before him, and someone brings a plate and sets it before him. Who's greater? The one sitting is. If you're in the Eastern culture, you understand that language. But what does our Lord say? But I'm among you as one that serveth. I'm the one serving you. I, I'm the king here. I'm God. You see me sitting at the table saying, hey, bring me my food? No, you don't see that, do you? You don't see that in me. What do you see in me? You, what you see in me is me serving you. You don't see me demanding of you, do this, do that. You see me loving you and serving you, teaching you and helping you. In the word as, look in verse 26. But you shall not be so, but he that is great, greatest among you, let him be as the younger. Now, I've said this before, and we'll probably say it again. Every word of God is important. That two-letter word as, uh, it comes from a Greek word that means in the same manner as. He that is greatest among you, let him be in the same manner as. Speaking of how the Lord Jesus Christ taught them. The child of God is being made into the same image of his son. They are to be in the same manner as. Their life is to reflect that. As a servant, our Lord is teaching His children. As a servant, He's washed their feet. The towel is still girt about Him, wet from the water that He's wiped off of their feet. And He's teaching them in John chapter 13. And as a servant to them, our Lord is teaching His children that true greatness is not found in rank, 
He's king. He's God. Not found in some social standing. He's king. True greatness is found in loving service one to another. If you want a name in the world, you've got to live by the world's standards and the world's rules. You do what the world does. But if you want a name in heaven, then you, then you live according to heaven's standards. You live according to the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the master-servant relationship, true Christianity is defined as following the teachings and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the master. His word is supreme. It takes some Christians a, a while to come to that place. What God says is the final authority on it. It settles it. Now we all say that, but then when faced with something, we'll say, yeah, but. And I've done it. <laughs> but the word of God becomes the final authority. The more you understand that, the more you understand I'm the servant, he's the master, and the master's words are supreme. The less argument we have with what he says about things. And that's a hard place to come to because we are fighting all the time. The old nature is fighting all the time about our rights, my life, that sort of thing. We come to that place where we're at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I'm your servant, you're my master. What do you want me to do? And then we get up and we do it, and a week later we're back again, right? Because we forgot he's the master and we're the servant. And we're right back again. That's why the word is in a continuing action. God is always working with his children to bring them back again to that place. He's the master. His example is supreme. We say we are to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And when we say that, we are not saying that we are God or gods. Uh, and we're not saying that we have the ability to heal like he does. What we are saying is his life teaches us something of true Christianity. And what is true about Christianity is not the miracles uh, the raising of someone from the dead, that, uh, but the life, particularly his life as a servant. His words. We can't save a soul, but he can. And when we walk in his steps, we're not talking about our ability to save somebody from their sins. Uh, we're not talking about that. We're not talking about being king of kings and lord of lords when we walk in his footsteps. Not about that. Now, what are we talking about then? We're talking about the life he lived on this earth. As John says in his first epistle, we walk as he walked. We learn. Because we don't know anything about it. When God saved us, what do we know about Christianity? I can tell you about the world. I can tell you about sin. I can tell you about the kingdom of darkness. I can speak of those things. But what do I know about Christianity? I don't know anything about Christianity. Someone's got to teach me. And God has said, I'll teach you. 
I'll teach you. His example is supreme. He is the master. His demonstration of a true relationship between God with God is the supreme. What he says about it is the truth. The child of God, the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, learns in the process of learning to live his life as a servant who is not greater than his master, who does not exalt himself to a position greater than his master did. We learn that our thoughts are not his thoughts. Our wisdom is not his wisdom. We enter into the Christian life learning that all of our thoughts of life and living will change. As we submit ourselves to the Word of God, as we submit ourselves to what He has taught, our life begins to change. What I thought once changes. This is what is actually true. I thought I had a little wisdom about marriage. This is what is true. I thought I had a little wisdom about raising children. This is what is true. I thought I had a little wisdom about this or that or the other. This is what is true. As we study the scriptures, as we learn from our Lord, we, we see everything that we thought that we knew begins to change. We had religion, and we found out that's not Christianity. There's a difference between religion and Christianity. And we look back on that, and, and, and we see how much we've changed. Because God's taught us something. Our way of life is not His way of life. We enter into Christian, the Christian life learning that our way of life will change. I remember early in my ministry, I, I was preaching, I was ministering to a, a couple across the street up the hill from where we lived. And, and, uh, and uh, I had a faulty understanding of the gospel at that time. I'm talking about 1979, 1980. I was just really grappling with a lot of things. And I was, I, I just saying what I knew was, and understood at the time. And, and so um, they professed faith in Christ. And, and then I was ministering to them. And I came over once and, he, and, he's, and he's drinking. And he's about drunk. I was raised with a drunk father. I, I know what that is. And I said to him, I said, when God saves someone, he changed their life. He said, if I got to give up drinking, I hadn't said anything about drinking. I said, God changes your life. He said, if I got to give up drinking, I'd rather go to hell. And I said, well, then go to hell. If that's what you want. If that's what you want. If that's your choice. What can I do about it? I, I can't stop you from if that's the decision you make. And he looked at me and I said, I can't fix this. Only God can. I knew that much. Never came back to church. He missed something. I, maybe I missed something in what I was dealing with him about. I don't know. But whatever it was, he didn't understand that when God does something, he changes his life. Now, that's in increments, and that can be radical or can be slow. I'm not God. I'm not saying what it is in your life. It's not my place to judge what God 
the, the, the degree or intensity that God is doing things. But it is my place to see if you're a Christian, are you seeking to follow what the Word of God says? And to help you to do that. We lived our life according to our own desires, according to our own thinking. And then God saves us. And we begin to understand that we need now to live according to what He says and what His Word says. And that's a long process. But nonetheless, it is the, inter it is the pathway that we have chosen. I've now been saved since uh, August of 1975. Uh, and uh, what I have found this past week is that God is still teaching me, still mending me, still repairing me. You say, Brother Pat, that's, that's 40 what, some years, Brother Pat. <laughs> Have you not arrived yet? Uh, I wish I could say, I've arrived. I've got it now. I've got a handle on it. But I, I don't. But I am not what I used to be. I am not what I used to be. God could testify to that. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. That's the next verse. If you know, here's that word, English word know that comes from that Greek word that not to know the facts, but if you know by experience of these things. Uh, then you will be happy in them. If you, if you are persuaded of the truth of my example here, if you understand the truth behind what I have just done here in, Acts, in John 13 in, in washing your feet, if you understand what has just taken place, if you grasp it, not the outward act, everybody can see that, but if you understand what's taken place here, if it has reached into your heart and you have gained some sense of what I've been doing here, then when you do it, there's going to be a joy and a blessing in it. If you understand your duty to God, as I understand my duty to God, if you understand your duty to one another, as I have tried to teach you here, if you know and understand the love and respect you should have for each other, the brotherly love, the humility of a servant, one toward another, acting uh, for the good of others. If you know and understand my example of washing your feet, then you will also do it. And when you do it, there will be a blessing that flows from that. So why do we do the things that we do? Now, I've been a pastor since 1979. And... At the root of all religion, there is a works mentality. I do this because I'm trying to please God. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if it is based upon my works rather than based upon love, then it's wrong. I'm doing this because I love the Lord. And I want to please Him. Why do you do the things you do? If you... If you, if you know these things, 
happy are you if you do them? Why do you know? Why do you do the things that you do? The answer, the only answer to those, to that question is that God has taught me something about true Christianity and, and I'm seeking to follow that. I'm seeking to follow that. You will be happy then, being a servant. That's not the thinking of the world, is it? Just the opposite, in fact. If you know and understand, and if you keep doing what I have taught you and have shown you, you will experience Christian happiness. We're surrounded by people that are not happy. They're not happy with their circumstances. They're not happy with their income. They're not happy with their health. They're not happy with their house. They're not happy with... I'm extremely blessed with this house and very happy. They're not happy with life. But Christ says you will be. But the precursor to that is if you know and understand what I've been doing here. That's what's going to make you happy. And I've said to Christians and I've said to people uh, a thousand times, uh, hyperbole, a thousand times since I've been a Christian. Give yourself to the ministry of somebody else and you will see your life change. Stop sitting at home thinking, woe is me. Get up, get out, find somebody to minister to, to help, to pray for, and see what God does in your heart. See if God doesn't just change your whole outlook when you begin to serve others. See if it doesn't just change things. It is not the person who has studied the Christian books or studied Bible doctrine who is blessed. I've studied Christian books. I've got a few libraries here, more in the other room. I've studied Bible doctrine. If you want to talk about a particular doctrine, I think I could discuss it with you. That's not what our Lord is saying here. Those things are important. They're critical, in fact. But that's not what our Lord is saying here. He's talking about the person who has read the Scriptures, studied it, yes, learned it, and understood it. Not can just rattle it off, but understands it. And then puts it into action. So how much did you know in the early days of Christianity? I knew that much. How much did you do? I did that much, and I often fell on my face because I only knew that much, okay? But I learned quickly in my Christian life. What God says, do it, and I, and I, and I, and I, didn't, I wasn't equipped for it, but I just jumped in, both feet. Ask my wife. She'll tell you about those days. Full of zeal, not a lot of knowledge. But I learned from that. Our Lord said in Luke eleven twenty eight, Blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. In the book of the Revelation, we read in chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that heareth the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein. Hear, read, hear, keep, do. 
But I'll close with this thought. This kind of Christianity is hated by the religious world and the secular world. If you're going to enter into this kind of Christianity, if you're going to enter into Christianity, you need to understand the servant is not greater than his master. If they hated Christ, they're going to hate you. If they hate God, they're going to hate you. You're not going to escape that. Religion hates this kind of Christianity because it reveals what they don't have. The world hates this kind of Christianity because, especially the political world, because it changes people and sets them free, makes them servants to a king that is not an earthly king, but a heavenly king. It is hated. I was in the state of Tripura in India, and I was teaching on the I was asked to teach on the family. And, and that asking to teach on the family came because the previous time that I was there, I, my last message before I left the state was out of Ephesians. And in passing, literally in passing before I got back to the text, I said, the scripture says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. I finished my message, packed up my bags, and we left. Came back two weeks later. We did not know. One man in the church was touched by that verse. He had been beating his wife, very common in India. Beat them into subjection with a rod. They had lived in separate ends of the house for years. God broke his heart. He went home weeping for his wife, confessed he had not loved her the way Christ loved the church, asked her to forgive him. That was Friday. Sunday, stood before the church, weeping. I've been sinning against my wife. I have not loved her as Christ loved the church. God broke into the hearts of the men. They started went home confessing to their wives that they have not been loving them as Christ loved the church. And it began to spread. And I come back two weeks later, will you teach on the family? I said, yes, we'll have a conference. And so we had a conference, 10 or 12 days, whatever it was, I was teaching on the family. And of course, family starts with husbands and wives, right? And, and then how parents take care of children and all that. And as I'm teaching through husbands and wives, about a third of the people that attend left with one man leading them. And his words were, his words were, this kind of Christianity is impossible. And he became an enemy to the work. He became an enemy on the teachings of husbands love your wives. As Christ loved the church. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 24 and 25, our Lord says, The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his lords. If they call the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? If they call Jesus Christ Satan, he did his miracles by the power of Satan. What will they say of his children? These are not Christians. 
They are not true Christians. They are liars and deceivers. They are not true. The study of religion through history proves that this is the case. Where true Christians are killed because they believe the word of God. And religion flourishes because they hate true Christianity. John 15 and verse 20. Remember the word that I said unto you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. This kind of Christianity, this, this message of Christ in John 13 and again in John 15 and other, this life, if you just say, I'm going to follow Christ and this is the life I'm going to live, this is going to be hated by Christians, by professing Christians, by religious people. And it's going to be hated by the, the world. India has a prime minister now that has publicly stated that he will stamp out Christianity by 2025. There will be no Christianity in India. Good luck with that. You're going to have to stamp out God first. That's not going to happen. But men think that they can put away what God is God's. And it cannot happen. Where are we this morning? Where are we in our understanding? The servant is not greater than the master. Do we have a master? Are we a servant? Are we where we are we being taught of him and where we should be as a Christian? I don't know where that is for you. Don't come to me and say, Brother Pat, you tell me what to do. <laughs> Go to the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll tell you what to do. He will. Well, what do you think? Well, here, read this text to the scriptures. I can help you in the word of God. But I'm not your master. I'm not your ruler. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm a brother in Christ. Come alongside you and help you. But I cannot and I will not rule you. There's one that is your master and he is Jesus Christ in heaven. I, with you and before him, asking him, Lord, what do you want me to do? Join me there. But if you're here without Christ, I will not lie to you. I do not want to deceive you. I want you to come and follow Christ. I desire with the depths of my heart that you come and you follow Christ. But I will not lie about true Christianity to you to make it something that it is not so that you can come in and then later find out this is not what I signed up for. That's how the world talks. I want you to know the truth. The birds of the air have nests. The foxes have holes. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head. I want you to know the truth. If you're going to follow Christ, it may cost you something. It may. It may cost you a, memory, a family member. It may cost you a job. It may do that. People who have determined to follow Christ in other countries have lost things because of that decision to come and follow Christ. It may cost you. It will cost you something. But there is no greater life on this earth than to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. With all of my struggles and failures, there is no great... I wouldn't trade the last 40 years of what I have seen and, and learned of God for one more day in the world with all that it has to offer. I wouldn't trade it for one day in the world. I want you to come to Christ. You're in need of a Savior. But I want you to understand when you come... You follow Him. 
He will direct your steps. You may go through this whole life and never once suffer. I doubt it, but you may. If you do, it'll be because Christ has taken you that path. But I want you to understand, it is possible. I sat down with an elderly man many, many years ago. He was a millionaire. He'd come to our church for some time, and he would always fall asleep. And, and I sat down with him, and I, with a broken heart, I said, What keeps you from Christ? And his words were, I'm afraid that if I come to Christ, he's going to ask me to do what that rich young ruler was told sell everything and come and follow me. I said, well, it's possible because it's in the scripture, right? But uh, we don't find that with every disciple. There were others that he did not ask that of. But I'm afraid he will of me. And I worked my whole life to have all of this. And I said to him, what good will it be in the end? What good will it be in the end? He's still lost today. Still lost today. He was afraid that if he came to Christ, it would cost him something. It will cost you something. It may not cost you your whole living. It may not. But it will cost you something. The very least is that you give up your sin. And you give up the world. And you have Christ as your Savior. What have you given up? Everything that's going to burn away. That I might have Christ. True Christianity is where God takes a sinner, changes their heart, and turns them into a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.